This episode of the AD History Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you, contributing through the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Learn more about how you can support the show by visiting patreon.com slash adhistorypodcast and the exclusive benefits that await your generous support. Join us in the effort to keep creating the AD history you deserve by visiting patreon.com slash adhistorypodcast. Thank you. Have you ever wondered if one figure's sweeping vision could take Rome out of its third century crisis? Well, have we got a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, we got a lot of good stuff in store for today, but I think there's one place that we have to begin, if for no other reason than pride of place, because now it would seem... The AD History Podcast is two years old as of this week. Two years old, man. Where has that time gone? That's incredible. No. Happy birthday, AD History. Happy birthday, Odo. Happy birthday, Paul. Kind of happy birthday, Paul. <laughs> happy birthday, Patrick. Kind of happy birthday, Patrick. Happy birthday, Anna. Happy birthday, everyone involved. Thank you all so much for joining us for these two years, and especially if you were there from the very beginning, and especially if you just joined us recently. Like You've got two years worth of quality podcasts to catch up on. Yeah, I can't believe we've made it this far, Paul. Yes, most definitely. And it's amazing because I think, where has that time gone? I said, I think to myself, oh, I'm not too sure. Only thing I'm sure of is that I have been lost in a sea of green waveforms ever yeah. since. Yeah, yeah, you have, Paul. You've been uh, behind the scenes here. Paul, guys, is the one. He's doing so much behind the scenes here on this podcast. So thank Paul. Thank you so much for getting us here to this two-year mark because probably wouldn't be here if it was just me. <laughs> Well, I, I can tell you this. One thing that's for sure, and this is definitely a little piece of advice for podcasters out there, there are some great solo podcasts, but there is a real joy, a real gratification to having a very successful partnership and co-hosting one. And you and I have been just the pinnacle of that. And it's really worked out. And you guys have really been the ones to see that firsthand. So for those of you who have been here since the beginning, thank you. Of course, that we hope you continue to enjoy it, and you've seen the, the quality of the show improve, but it's been a lot of fun. It's been hell of, hell of a journey. Part of that journey is somewhat coming to an end with this episode, Paul, because that crisis of the third century that's been plaguing us for the past forever, it feels like. It's crisis of the third century. It feels like it's been the crisis of forever because we've dedicated, yeah. we've dedicated the majority of this season to this crisis, but it's actually coming to an end partially more or less in this episode but it's such a big dramatic end that not only are we both going to be focusing on this end but the that this end is also going to leak over into the next episode as well it definitely is because we finally arrived at the big moment the big moment being diocletian coming into power and well you guys will certainly find out very very quickly that that is one hell of a subject to try and tackle because diocletian didn't just come in and tried to fix a few things. He came in and tried to fix everything. Everything. And it's going to take us the better part of, uh, certainly over one episode, in order to cover that in the kind of detail that, well, 
both you, I, and you listening, wherever you may be, have come to expect from AD history. And that's a beautiful thing. That, and we have your responses from the previous episode. And I'll note, note real quick, and we'll get more into this in that middle segment, but because it's only been up for about three or so days at the time of recording, we're going to keep the responses coming. So if you hear this episode, we'll keep the open responses for the next one as well, so you have a little bit more time to actually throw it in there if you want to do it. But we have a handful of them today that are really good, and we look forward to sharing them in our famous middle segment. But with all of that out of the way, and everything being said, it is time for our necessary, obligatory, now legendary AD History Podcast Ground Rules. One, evaluate events in the context they occurred. Two, over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. Three, nothing in history was inevitable. And four, history and the past is like a different country. Now, I think it is best to set the scene. Emperor Diocletian, one of the most influential Roman emperors who ever lived and ruled, one can never accuse him for having a lack of vision or for the scope of his vision in any way lacking. When he came in, Initially, during the crisis of the third century, it is supposed that he said, crisis? What crisis? And this was not the remark of some delusional weirdo at the top of power. This was a man who was very, very determined, not just to fix everything that happened that caused this crisis as best as he could, but he was also somebody who intended on remaking the Roman Empire in his idealized image. And in some respects, he was incredibly successful. In other cases, he failed miserably. But there's no question that his reforms were both dramatic, revolutionary, and sweeping. Anywhere you were in the empire, you felt the effects of the changes that Diocletian was implementing. And perhaps now, interestingly enough, coming at the end of our third season, this is the very tip of the iceberg of what we know today, certainly in Europe, as the early Middle Ages. Can you believe it, Patrick? Early Middle Ages. It feels bizarre to finally kind of be here in the Middle Ages. Antiquity is all we've known or here on AD History Pool. We, we started kind of in the throngs of antiquity. I mean, towards the end of antiquity, I guess, in the grand scheme of things, but they're almost done. And the Middle Ages are almost here. And the, the, we've got the Dark Ages coming up as well. And it could be interesting to see what we can find on the Dark Ages, that's for sure. But it's a massive, it's another huge uh, time of history we've got coming up. And it's going to be sad to say goodbye to Rome and everything Rome entails, because they've served us incredibly well in these early days. It's been fascinating following this story of Rome. We've seen its highest of highs, and now we're seeing its lowest of lows. And to be very specific, I would even say Rome as we know it, and in many cases, Rome as many of us envisage it. This is the tip of that iceberg. And what's interesting about Diocletian is that 
this was no man of noble birth. This man came from, in the Roman world, effectively nowhere. Yeah, so he was actually born in Dalmatia, which is in modern-day Croatia. I'm sure a lot of you guys know that anywhere. He was born in 245 AD. So just to get an idea of things, Paul, we mentioned this in a previous episode, like that would have been in the middle of the crisis. This is a guy who who would only have known Rome in this position. That's how much time, that's how, much, that's how long this crisis had been going on for. Being born in 245 AD, that's what he would have known. He wouldn't know anything else. He would have known Rome in this state at all times. And he was of incredibly humble origins. His father was a freed slave out of anything. You know, we've seen We've seen empire emperors at the moment cover all kinds of backgrounds, but to be the son of a freed slave, that really is far removed from Rome as we once knew it. Especially like when you look at dynasties like the Julio-Claudian dynasty with Augustus, where we start, they have some strange hanger-ons personally in their coterie, but the idea that someone like this could take the reins would have been almost profane. It's it's mad. Like a lot of those guys, they come from like the original seven patrician families, uh, stuff like that. Like very, very blue blood. But this is we're not in blue blood territory anymore. So and this, of course, meant that he gained power like many previous barrack emperors, because say we want about Diocletian, he was still a barrack emperor. And he gained that through uh, his time in the military. And he was a competent military man, eventually becoming a commander. And by 283 AD, he was one of Emperor Carus's personal bodyguards while on campaign in Persia. And Emperor Carus actually died in 283 as well of natural causes of all things. He was one of the few uh, barrack emperors to not be killed by his own men. So that's kind of unique, I suppose. And Carus's son, Numerian, took over and Diocletian continued as his bodyguard too. Though Numerian's reign was short-lived, he reigned from just... 283 AD to 284 AD, and he supposedly died of an eye infection while out on campaign. However, some suspected he was murdered, and the blame for Numerian's death fell on the shoulders of Commander Arasu Aper, and he was Numerian's father-in-law, and it was believed he killed Numerian to claim the throne for himself, though this backfired and Diocletian's avenged Numerian's death by killing Aper. And after this, after this noble act of killing the supposed murderer of Numerian, Diocletian was declared the emperor by his men in 284 AD. So, Paul, who do we really have to thank for, or what do we really have to thank for getting Rome out of the crisis? Could we argue that an eye infection actually saved Rome's ass in all this? I've heard stranger things, my friend, not even in the last week. I, I think that's an interesting way of kind of putting the butterfly effect into, into play here. It is this a great example of the butterfly effect. If it's to be true, of course, we're not entirely sure. An eye infection seems the most plausible idea, but there is those ideas of murder. I think there's even rumors that Diocletian murdered himself, but that's just all what ifs and who buts and we won't delve into there. And after this, Diocletian was declared emperor in 284 AD, as I mentioned, but he did not have rule over the entire emperor. Numerian's brother, Carinus, was ruling as co-emperor, so Diocletian and his men 
marched to Carinus and killed him too. And this solidified Diocletian as Rome's one single emperor. And as emperor, Diocletian got to work on dragging Rome, kicking and screaming out of this crisis. And he got to work, Paul. And Diocletian wanted to get Rome back to its pre-crisis state, or as close to that as possible. And he had several observations coming into power. And as you know, Patrick, every once in a while, we love to shout out to our listeners, especially ones that leave comments on YouTube, because that's really the closest and easiest means of communication when it comes to hearing from you all and what you're thinking. This is a fellow we've heard from before, goes by the name of Martin Fox. Martin always leaves extremely thoughtful stuff. We'll actually hear from him again a little later in the show. And he made several observations about the empire and listening to our description of the crisis of the third century. This is what Martin had to say on the subject. He said, what I've learned about Rome via listening to the series are that one, the empire got too multicultural to maintain for long. The more homogeneous a society is, the better for stability. And in parentheses, he quotes, not making an excuse for racism or discrimination. And no worries there, Martin. No. We know where you're coming from. Two, the army held too much power for much of its existence, which is never a good thing because once you get them in, you can't get them out. Myanmar is a good example of this in our modern world. And all I can say to that is, hoorah, our friend. Three, they needed some form of upward mobility other than the army, and a lack of this is partly why they had so many bad emperors. In this sense, it had a similar framework to the Indian caste system, which sometimes prohibited them from picking their best and brightest to rule. And then four and last, the emperors needed a clearly established line of succession for the sake of a peaceful transition of power. Not necessarily heredity, but some form of meritocracy that would have gone a long way here. And Martin, I think you put that all extremely succinctly. That's why we chose to read it out in this segment, because we actually think it's a very good way to launch into this. And interestingly enough, Diocletian came to some similar conclusions himself. There was a few other things that he would add to this, and some things actually he would disagree in that statement. But we'll get to those later. One of the big things that he noted right off the bat, looking at a map of the empire as it existed when he came into power, simply put, he came to the conclusion, and not inaccurately, that it was too goddamn big. The Roman Empire was simply too big for realistically to be overseen by a single individual. Millions upon millions of people. And with that much power invested in a single individual, it becomes extremely hard to administer. And I got to say, guys, he isn't wrong. He wasn't wrong by any means. And so one of the things that he did that's really important, and it definitely hits at one of Martin's points here, which comes down to succession and the office of the emperor itself. And so the biggest change Diocletian made to the imperial system, and he made many, and it was meant to help with succession, was the creation of what we call today, and they knew then, as the Tetrarchy. For those of you who are not familiar, that means basically rule of four. And the Tetrarchy divided the empire effectively into an eastern and western half with four basically into quadrants. Each half had two halves that were subsequent to it. And the idea behind that is that in that case, you have four effectively sweeping governors, or I would even call many emperors, that are doing the job of what the emperor did, but 
on a more local level. There's still millions of people that are living in those quarters of the empire. But the idea was, and this is going to really play out, especially when the next episode, when we start getting into the serious details of how he restructured the bureaucracy. And guys, I, I know what you're thinking. I know what I would be thinking in your case. Bureaucracy. God, why would you want to talk about that? How can that possibly be interesting? Amazingly, it is extremely interesting beyond all expectation. But let's get into how he's doing this with succession. So we have our tetrarchy. And of course, when it came to the ramifications of this, about 1,200 years or so, most of that would be felt in what we know at this point, or will come to know, as the Eastern Roman Empire, which became the Byzantines. And if you want to put an interesting spin on this, Patrick, this is the way I would think about it. These reforms in those 1,200 years literally go from where we are now in our show to the very beginning of European colonization of the Western Hemisphere. The Colombian voyages, that's where it takes us. It is mad. How long the Eastern such Byzantine Empire lasts is insane. And it's not even what I find interesting. It's not even the original, like the Eastern Roman, but doesn't even, even include actual Rome itself. This thing went on a very long time without its original, in, in no way in its original form. I just find that incredible. And what else I find kind of ironic, I guess might be the word for it, is didn't we just spend the last few episodes trying to put the empire back together after splitting up? And now we've got an emperor who's deciding to split it up himself. Like, we, we just stopped this from happening, but now you're saying it's a good thing? Well, he thought it was most certainly the most pragmatic thing. And it really was, as we saw how long the East went on for. And Rome was just too big and too bloated onto itself. It needed something like this to happen. It's a, it's, it's a tough thing to do to think, to give up something like that, to make it do something that big. But Diocletian was no normal person. He really, he clearly realised this is what needs to happen. He certainly did. So the way this kind of worked out, even though Diocletian was still very much the guy in charge, he ended up ruling the eastern half, at, at least de jure. And the western half was largely, with one of his officers become son-in-law, Maximian, who ruled in the west. Each of the rulers of these halves were called Augustus, and they each had a Caesar underneath them. So you have the big guy at the top, you have his four immediate subordinates, and then you have folks under him. Like I said, in our next episode, we're going to go more into this because it's incredibly detailed and all very important. And the aim, when in Augustus left the throne, is that the Caesar would take over. So the Caesars are below them. There is a way for this to happen in a more formalized fashion that everybody understands. And it helped a number of issues, but one of them, of course, is administering a Rome of the size that it was at the time, which was still quite enormous. And it reached a stage where one man, of course, could not rule over all of it. And now it meant that two smaller emperors would have two people under them and it's easier to administer, like I said. But there was still the guy at the top and that really was de facto, in many cases, Diocletian all the same. But they were not completely separate entities. The East and West still worked together, though over time, of course, it would obviously diverge. I think most people probably understand that. And Maximian agreed that Diocletian was the senior Augustus, that he could basically veto something that Maximian did. And Diocletian was not beyond that, let's put it that way. But we now start wading into how he overhauled the Roman bureaucracy as a whole, which is, like I said, given the ethnic extent we have to do in our next episode. But the thing that was really interesting, Patrick, that I find fantastic, and there's no better place to truly start because this institution has changed so much, is the institution of the emperor itself. 
when we start seeing an emperor, seeing its origins basically going, for all intents and purposes relative to our show, going back to Sula, so within a century from when our show starts. And he was a temporary, effectively, dictator, but he stepped down and he had life afterwards. And, of course, you had Julius Caesar, who tried to become a dictator for life, effectively, and that led to his demise. And then Augustus came to power. We've talked about that, episode two of season one, which was truly brilliant. And he created this really strange patchwork that ended up working quite well called the Principate. And just for a little bit of review, the Principate was stood for first citizen basically the idea disingenuous or otherwise as a first among equals and they're throwing that away entirely patrick he changed the office of emperor to such an extent that romans at the beginning of our show and not even more than a little over a season ago would have found deeply problematic and really might have actually enraged them because he turned the emperor not into this princept first among equal stuff. He almost became a semi-divine being in fact while he was alive. And you and I know very well, in addition to you, wherever you may be listening, if you've listened to the show for as long as you have at this point, you know how offensive it would be to many previous iterations of Romans and Roman leaders, the idea that there was an emperor who was making a divine connection between himself and the supernatural while they are alive and ruling. That's incredible stuff. And the interesting thing is, Patrick, why did he choose to do it? I guess he kind of chose to do it, Paul, to just give the emperor, the Augusti, more respectability to try and put the troops, put the people back in line. They, they, he didn't want the Augusti, the Augustus, to be this sort of matey fellow. Like I mean, The best thing, you sent me that great talk by that wonderful professor at Yale, and he has said that, in the past, you would go and shake the emperor's hand. This time, you'd grovel at his knees until the emperor asked you to shake his hand. It just it deified them an awful lot more. It gave the people someone more holy than holy to look up towards. Perhaps he thought, if people see the emperor in a more serious light, they might respect him more, and it will help Rome get out of this crisis. He did that, and he also made access to the emperor a lot harder as well, because there was a lot of rings to go through before you eventually got to him, and he also minimized the exposure. He basically created this emperor that was supposed to be almost mythical. It's really interesting to think about. And without, you know, various aspects of him being known and playing up this idea, it also meant that Roman subjects would let their imagination run away with the truth of the matter in regards to his semi-perceived divine status. And it gave him an incredible power based on the idea that his people were eventually buying into the idea that this guy is somehow beyond even us mere mortals of the unwashed masses. And he wasn't doing this to feed his own ego. He was doing it for a very specifically orchestrated point. And the other thing is, as much as some you know, will look up and, and praise Diocletian, and he did much that was praiseworthy, make no mistake about it, this guy was not some great democratic reformer. This guy was an autocrat outright in addition to the whole semi-divine status he's trying to portray. And 
he washed all the former conventions away in a sense that it is so unique, such an aberration to Roman convention up to this point. It actually is a little shaking. It just shows how much Rome has changed over the time period we've been watching where we've had people who were just sort of like one of the masses and now they're like a holy figure and being a holy figure like that, as you mentioned, Paul, it wasn't a thing like you would have been sort of accused of, of so much if you were wanted to be emperor, but wanted to act like that. It just shows Rome has changed an awful lot in this time period. Absolutely. And we've seen more than a few emperors who have suffered due to their own delusions trying to do the same thing in the past. But like we said, now we have an idea of how he wanted to rule and how he wanted to change the imperial institution at the very top, the office of emperor. He gets further into the various things that he wants to fix, and in fairness to Rome, absolutely needed to fix as well. Yeah, and this was Rome's crippling, crippling economy. And Diocletian, he gave he had a good swing at trying to fix the money issues in Rome as well. And after decades of a debased currency and inflation, Diocletian attempted to solve these issues. However, this wasn't done in one big thing like there was the Tetrarch, he didn't just introduce something. This was a more gradual thing. He 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 added to the economy and change the economy over a time period. There were sort of a couple main things he did in the economics department. And one of the things he did was actually rework and create a new coinage model. He created five coins that were generally based on the previous three metal Roman coins. The biggest was a new copper coin meant for use in most everyday transactions. And what's interesting, Paul, is that the Romans never truly grasped what the intrinsic value slash inflation relationship of is of currency. Which is to say, while you cannot also keep creating coins with less and less gold and silver, to combat this, it's more about the total number of coins in circulation. And if there is less physical currency to go around, people will be less inclined to spend, thus keeping prices in check. He didn't just stop there by any means. He got into the taxes as well. And yes, guys, amazingly, once again, so long as it doesn't turn into a Star Wars prequel, we're talking about taxation. <laughs> yes, yeah. So we won't go too deep into this because we have the chance of becoming a, a, a really enjoyable Star Wars prequel, uh, quote unquote. Yes. With the exception of the Clone Wars TV show and the Bad Batch. Just throwing it out there, <laughs> yes. throwing it out there. Just, Diocletian, he introduced a new form of taxation. This was called Capitatio Legatia, I think I'm saying that right. And this began by allowing uh, individuals in the production of certain goods or services to begin paying outright with those, mostly goods, but not everyone can necessarily do that. And he created a system that can evaluate the productivity of things, e.g. land or population, with specifically product labour based on a sliding scale, and if things will be taxed on a certain formula. And to really simply explain this, and this, this is how I perceived it anyway, because I'm not a tax expert anyway, but to really simply explain this, they taxed quality over quantity. And this is really, uh, especially the case of land, it would seem. So someone who owned a lot of low quality land would get taxed less than someone who owned a small amount of high quality land. And what's an interesting way of doing things is we so often, even today, we call we tax on the size, the size of things. If you've got a bigger house, you get taxed more on that bigger house for a variety of reasons. If you have more land, you get taxed on that land. But to actually look at the quality of things, that's it's a really interesting thing, if you agree, Paul. It, it definitely is. And what's interesting about this is that he did not set out and try to create a one-size-fit-all system. This definitely plays into part of Diocletian's character, which is to say that he did have a pretty steady and understandable concept of what he considered to be fairness. Understanding that 
Some land is clearly more valuable than others. Some labor in a given family or business is more valuable than others. So it does happen kind of on this sliding scale. But what's interesting in terms of the taxation issue that you're mentioning is that, yes, some individuals could pay their taxes in a form that wasn't just Roman currency, whether it's pigs or whether it's grain. You, you get the idea, but not everybody could do that. And then when they were implementing this, Patrick, and I think this is really fascinating, is that certainly Diocletian was keenly aware that in this case, we have these certain professions where they're able to pay their taxes not through currency, but through these tangible items that are almost closer to barter in some ways, if you think about it, is he realized that if this went too far, that would mean everybody in the empire would start flocking towards those professions because it's the only way that they could potentially meet their tax burden. And so the question is, what did he do in that case? And this is fascinating, and this is something that really speaks to the future from where we are in the show right now, is that Diocletian created a system whereby professions became almost compulsory and on a hereditary basis. So if you were a son of a Mason, in all likelihood, you would become a Mason yourself, and then your sons, and then their sons would become Masons as well, just as an example. And for those of you listening closely, and I know you and I most certainly stumbled across this ourselves, Patrick, doesn't this speak in a very similar fashion to what we will come to find in terms of European medieval serfdom? It really is. Like we said at the beginning, this is the early stages of the Middle Ages, and that's such a Middle Age concept. My father was a fisherman and his father was a fisherman and his father was a fisherman. That sort of concept of just hereditary jobs is something we associate deeply with the Middle Age, the medieval time period. You, that, that even formed the guilds where it was like... It was absolutely. The guild system is really where yeah. this begins. The Romans began yeah. very, very tightly enforcing that you need to join that guild. And once you join that guild, you ain't getting out. Yeah. And... It kind of goes against Martin's initial idea that we needed more upwards mobility in perfect, this time of Rome. Perfect point, perfect point. You beat yeah. me to it. Yeah. Well, no. Sometimes I get there before you pull. <laughs> yeah. It's not sometimes, my friend. We, we keep each other on our toes. Yes, keep your toes. But um, yeah, this, while we, we appreciate what Diocletian did, this isn't particularly good. This very much kept people in their place in life. Like you were born into a farming life, you will stay a farmer. And that's not entirely great. It was handy, I guess, if Rome needed some sort of stability like this to guarantee that those jobs would be done in the future. And this is a very extreme way of achieving that goal. It certainly goes against Diocletian's life story and how he rose up out of nothing, to be sure. No, that's a very good point to make. Yeah, he, he definitely still isn't living the life of a freed slave anymore, definitely living the life of a soldier anymore. Hell no. And under, under his own rule, there's no way that he could make himself and turn himself and uplift himself into the position he was. But we'll get to the other half of these particular forms in this episode right after a word from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at ADHistoryPC and the hashtag ADHistory. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. 
as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. As always, thank you, Anna. Now, in our previous episode, we did our middle segment, and we were talking about shared generational moments in history that are just profound and earth-shaking. And we ask you to submit some of your responses for how you personally have experienced some of those episodes in your own life. And as a recording, we've only had it up for about three or four days. So if you want to submit one, submissions are still open, and we will continue this in our next segment. But we got some really good ones. These are the best. And we want to read them out to you because they're really interesting and History is also about perception, especially contemporaneous perception and how you live through these events. And it was a brilliant idea on your part, Patrick, to really open this up. This is really exciting, isn't it? Yeah, it was. It was such a it was on it was a really on the fly decision. And I'm happy I made that on the fly decision because we're just I've just been reading through some of your responses now. There's some really interesting stuff like big events around the world that I didn't even know happened. That, that it's always alarming. It's somewhat worrying, I would say, to realise just how little your nation's news tells you about what's going on elsewhere in the world, it feels like at times, because I feel like these are events I should know about some of these. I just don't. So it's interesting to hear about them in the first place, and it's interesting to hear your guys' views on them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you guys came through in spades, and like I said, submission's still open, so please either leave it in the comments or YouTube or send it to us in an email, adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. That's adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. And we start with YouTube and Randy Van Halen, who presumably is from the Netherlands. Yes, thank you, Paul. Yes, Randy is writing from the Netherlands here, and Randy Van Halen has said, One historical moment in my home country happened in May 2002. In the Netherlands, the politician Pirma Fortion, apologies about mispronunciation there, was assassinated mere weeks before the elections. I remember how he did an interview on the radio and got shot when he walked out of the studio. That day, the murder was everywhere on the television, with too many gruesome and horrifying details visible. He had some very controversial standpoints. You either hated him or you loved him. Especially his views on immigration and Islam were fiercely debated. As a young kid, I was eight when this happened. I felt very threatened. I was raised with the idea that we lived in a free country and you were allowed to say anything you wanted. And now someone was killed because of what they fought. So that didn't fit with that idea. And thank you, Randy, for sharing that. This is this is a story I never heard before. A, a politician being shot dead outside of a radio station in 2002 in the Netherlands. Like, that's the kind of stuff we don't really get taught about here in the UK. So hearing your view on it, Randy, as just a young eight-year-old child is fascinating. So here in the United States, we do have something of a history for politically motivated assassinations, both successful and attempted. I believe the most recent one was of Ronald Reagan. And we do, I like to think, live in a free society that values and codifies free speech. But that doesn't always mean that there aren't obvious repercussions out there. There are bad actors. In my, in my country, we've seen this numerous times. Obviously, you had the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan. You had the successful assassination of John F. Kennedy. Prior to that, you had the successful assassination, I believe, of McKinley. And then you had the assassination, of course, of Abraham Lincoln. 
these things unfortunately do happen and they're realistic costs as fortunately as much as many of us do value such free speech and open debate even if those ideas are controversial even if those ideas are not always resonating with the public as a whole it happens and it's very disturbing anytime it does and we have to remember why and how these things do occur and that we are by no means invulnerable to them in the future so Politics and free speech can be a very dangerous business, even in a place that codifies and protects them legally. So make of that what you will, of course. And our next submission, once again, is from our friend Martin Fox over on YouTube, who writes, There's been so many things that could be classified as major generational historical moments, even in the 21st century. If I had to pick one, I would go with the 2008 financial crisis. I was 12 when it struck, and it was the first time I really paid attention to politics. I didn't fully grasp what was going on, but I realized the world was changing around me for the first time when all the stores in my hometown were closing down. To think we are still dealing with the fallout of this now, at least in some countries, is incredible. And once again, that's from Martin. I believe Martin is also from the UK, like yourself, Patrick. And yeah, I mean, I touched on this in the previous episode. I was obviously older. I was getting near college graduation. So this is something that affected me profoundly and certainly the millennial generation as a whole. So Martin, we were right there with you. It was a very scary time. And in many respects, that experience is never going to leave us. Think about like in my case, you may be the same, but I'm not sure. My grandparents grew up during the Depression. And there are certain qualities, both the ones that were here in the United States at the time and the ones that were in Italy, where those circumstances at a very influential point in their life never left them, even decades later when they were living under much better circumstances. I don't know if you've ever seen this, Patrick. Martin really hit a chord with this message for me because, as you mentioned, Martin's from the UK, I'm from the UK. And judging by 2008 being 12... I think I was about the same age. I, I can't do the math completely, but I think I was about 12 in 2008 as well, maybe a year older, maybe a year younger. And it really did change everything. And I'm sure Martin and many other UK-based listeners will get a big kick out of when I mention Woolworths. Um, Paul, I believe you still have Woolworths in the UK, in America, or a different version of Woolworths. I'm not sure. I'm honestly not sure. No, uh, so Woolworths was a chain of uh, shops here in the UK. There's other wolves in Australia, New Zealand, but the, the same name, different things. And um, UK wolves is known as like the big casualty of the 2008 credit crunch recession, whatever you want to call it. Um, it was a shop that just sold, it sold everything but nothing. Like hmm. you could buy, so it sold like CDs and sweets and like homeware and just sort of it's bits It's almost and like bobs. Walmart. It is, but Walmart sells actual like food. You could do your grocery shopping at Walmart. That's you can't some of them, do your, yeah. Yeah, you can't really do your grocery. You couldn't do your grocery shopping at Woolworths. And it was this shop. It was everywhere. It was, every town had a Woolworths. And it didn't really serve any purpose, but it could just exist. Woolworths could just exist and no one really batted an eyelid. I just remember the, the credit crunch happening in 2008. And just all of a sudden, things couldn't just exist anymore on the high street. You couldn't have a silly shop like Wolves that just existed. It didn't really serve any purpose. No one really shopped there, really. But it felt like innocence was lost as a 12-year-old at that time, that all these sort of silly things that could just be 
couldn't just be anymore. Things could only really be and thrive if it served a direct purpose. And all of a sudden, these shops were just closing left, right, centre. And I come from a very small town. And before 2008, there was a chocolate shop in my town, a shop that just sold fancy chocolate. And this is a small town. Like, it had no reason to have a fancy chocolate shop, but it could because the world could support silly things like that. And the recession just took that away. It took away that innocence. And I remember I have two older brothers and they could so easily walk into jobs. Like when they turned 16, 18, whatever, they just got jobs straight off the bat. And by the time I was 16 and there just weren't enough jobs going and I got interviewed for so many places, I just couldn't get a job. Like I just remember the world becoming very unfair after that, at least from my perspective anyway, it became a lot more unfair and harder. And that was from, from the perspective of a 12-year-old to a 14 or so year old. It definitely became a lot more gated. Yes, gate is the word for it. Yeah, all of a sudden things just, you couldn't just walk into places and it exists. It was just, things got tougher. And as I've gotten older, I started to, to grasp that idea more. And hopefully I explained it well there. But Martin, your comment is always very profound, brought out the best in us. And our next uh, message comes from Sam Just, and they said, in the year 2000, I was 10 years old and moved from Toronto to Boca Raton in Palm Beach County. I have many clear memories from the fallout of the election. I even remember listening to the SCOTUS case on the radio where I get most of my news. It's still one of the most consequential moments in recent American history. Paul, so I'm not as clued up. So in the year 2000, I was about four or five years old. So this and obviously I'm not stateside, but I know I know the the, the larger brushstrokes of the controversy of this election. But if you'd have to fill us in and explain your own perspective on this, so I was 13 years old in November of 2000, and I remember this election very well. And for those of you that were not old enough or don't remember, if you're in the United States, it'd be kind of hard to imagine you couldn't remember because it was such a thing. The broad strokes is this, without going into an overwhelming amount of detail. This, of course, was the election of George W. Bush, who would be the eventual victor against the then-sitting Vice President, Al Gore. And it was an extremely tight race. I mean, by the time you got to Election Day, the polls were neck and neck. You had a variety of battleground states, like, for example, Ohio was a big one. And, of course, the one that really played out was Florida. And the issue there was having to do with various issues with the ballot. and so. In that case, there was something called bat butterfly ballots where it was too confusing and that it led to voters making decisions or at least being counted for decisions they didn't intend. And then, of course, as we get to the recount point, because the, the, when we got to the end of the night in 2000, originally Florida was called for Al Gore and then George W. Bush picked up in numbers. And then by the morning, it was too close to call. George W. Bush was a bit ahead. And so we start getting to issues of voters being able to comprehend the butterfly ballots and does a chad indicate the intent to vote and the different types of chads. You know, you had pregnant chads, dimpled chads, chads across the water, chads across the sky, chads everywhere. And it was one legal issue after another when it came to the recount, because in its final approach, there was a very small difference in votes between George W. Bush in the lead and, of course, Al Gore behind him. And because of the way the Electoral College works, and we are not getting into a debate here about the merits of the Electoral College, leave that for 
way out in the future if we ever want to <laughs> do it, assuming. But it lasted for over a month. I remember on Thanksgiving reading headlines about the various legal battles that were going on at the time. And something that's really incredible here, Patrick. God, I wish I could find it. I was actually keeping a day-to-day journal of the various happenings that were leading to the conclusion. And eventually you get to December and the famous SCOTUS case, Bush v. Gore. And the Supreme Court was not all that happy having to weigh in on this issue. Obviously, they did, and it, it was a 5-4 in terms of the bench and their decision there. But one of the interesting things about that decision is so many Supreme Court cases, depending on their ruling, turn into legal precedent. And that legal precedent, in many cases, because the Supreme Court only concerns a case relevant to the United States Constitution, most of the time, their rulings in that precedent become de facto law. In this case, one of the asterisks they put when they made that decision is that this decision will have no bearing on any legal case like it going forward. This is a one-off, and that is absolutely fascinating. I don't even know how much precedent, oddly enough, ironically, that had prior to them doing it, but it was just a huge, huge thing, and it really took up America's attention. I remember that day-to-day, and it was a ride. I can imagine. So uh, obviously the most recent election, the 2020 election, that was an absolute ride to watch. And like I followed that religiously while it was happening. It took a week or so to... Um, really get the full to re- idea to really of what happened. Full, yeah. yeah. So and, and I was, in fr- I was in fr- enthralled, uh, loving watching that happen. So that must have been amazing to be following that so strictly. It must have been a really fascinating thing to do. And just, just to see it all unfold and be old enough to comprehend what was going on and to be in the country that it affected. Let's put it this way. As far as 2000 is concerned, I had never seen anything like it. I haven't seen anything that was truly analogous to it since. I really consider 2000 to be entirely its own thing. I remember that very well and following it very closely at 13 years old. But here's the last one that we're going to take from today, which is interesting. And it comes from Aiden in Minnesota, who writes, I'm quite a bit younger than both of you guys, being born in early 2004. I'm also an American. So one of the biggest and historic events of my lifetime would be the 2000 election of Obama, which I vaguely remember, and the 2016 election, which I understood that both outcomes would mean for this country, and obviously the COVID-19 pandemic, which it was clear to me in May 2020 that this is going to be a year or more longer of social distancing and schooling online and made me realize the effect many of those who are younger in my generation academically and socially and their formative years would have. I would also say that when you guys were talking about 9-11 being a big event to most of the world, it reminded me of the 775 London attacks, which since learning about, I have always, as the Britain's 9-11, though not even close in the number of death or injuries that actually happened on 9-11, and I was wondering if Patrick, as a Brit, had any thoughts on it. Love the podcast, you guys. Sincerely, Aiden B. from Minnesota. And first off, thank you for the very kind words, Aiden. Anytime you hear that, anytime we have the chance to speak to a listener or hear from them directly in some form, Saying you love the podcast is extremely humbling. I think Patrick knows where I'm coming from, especially with your work on Name Explain, where somebody has really just very deep, meaningful praise for the work you do. And sometimes you don't even know what to say because it's kind of overwhelming. It really is. And there's a lot to unpack in this uh, message. So first, Aiden, thank you so much for saying you love the podcast. I'm trying my best 
to take on positive uh, comments much more because negative bias is a thing that plagues all as humans and it's especially plagueful on YouTube where you get you get a huge amount of comments on both sides, but it tends to be the negative ones seem to stick in my brain more. So every time I get a positive comment now, I really cherish it. So thank you so much, Aiden, for saying you love the podcast. We love making it. Absolutely. We love that you enjoy listening to it. Okay, so I'm just going to go through this message bit by bit. And the first thing that comes to me is, holy shit, how are people from 2004 old enough to be listening to our podcast? Yeah, that was, a, that was a real <laughs> earth shaker for me too. It's... Um, <laughs> We're learning more and more about the folks who take the time to listen and follow our show, and there's never anything really but pleasant surprises. We'll get talk a little bit more about that in a bit, but yeah, yeah no, it, yes. it's it's incredible. When I think 2004, I was in my I was going into my senior year of high school, so the fact that a, a young person such as yourself, Aiden, is listening to us is um, it's very very provocative in terms of things one expects when doing a show like this. You guess you never know who's listening. No, you do never know who's listening. So, hey, shock aside, to to remember the 2008 election, that's great of you to remember that because that was a very momentous occasion. And as was the 2016 election, that was a very momentous occasion as well. But to be of your age, Aiden, during the COVID-19 pandemic, my heart and my hat goes off to you. I think about um, you guys all the time in this. I do. And to think, especially with ourselves, Paul, we're both... We're both not too young that it's affected our schooling. We're not too old that it's going to affect our health in a major way. We're both in jobs that are incredibly unaffected by having to work from home all the time. Me and you are both incredibly unaffected. Obviously, we are affected in our own ways. And, and our incredibly families have been affected. lucky. And incredibly lucky and incredibly fortunate that, by and large, this hasn't affected us at all. We were, we were working from home before it was cool, basically. But yeah. To go into schooling and just, 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 you're at such a key point in your life, uh, Aidy. You must be what sixteen, seventeen at the moment. To to have this at such a fulcrum of your period to go through this pandemic and to come out of this this completely different world, it's going to be is going to be amazing. And you're going to be creating our future. That's adding two on my high horse yoke. What you've experienced and the age you are is going to shape our future forever. So my heart really does go out for you for living through that. I was having a conversation at my brother's wedding last month with one of my best friends growing up, and we were talking about the pandemic, and he said, imagine how much this would suck if we were still in college. And I looked at him, I said, imagine how much this would suck if we were still in third or 11th grade. Think about how much that would affect you and coming into this world where fundamentally everything that had been part of education as we largely understand it in the West is wholly disrupted. And think about it, not just in terms of instruction and being able to go to school or learning online, but the social element, not being able to see your friends. Imagine if you had a girlfriend or boyfriend, you know, whomever you might be romantically connected with at that point in life, not being able to see them. And I don't mean to over-dramatize the point. I'm just trying to put myself in those shoes based on how I experienced those ages. Mm. It would have been bloody awful i would have gotten more sleep that would have been nice but that would have been a huge sacrifice and however you're doing it aiden however you're managing to cope however you and those you know and and others in your generation you know my hat goes off to you because in many respects you have it the hardest oddly enough even though for the most part younger people have been largely spared from this pandemic they haven't been exclusively it hasn't been entire but you had your own role and and you've had the impact on your life. And I can't even imagine what that's like. 
it's hard for me to put myself in your place. And not to rub salt in the wounds, but you're only young once. And just to have that snatched away from you must suck. To have like those prime youth years. So my cousin, she's spent her entire 18th year. She's turned, she turned 18 and then in turn turned 19 during the pandemic. So, and obviously here in the UK, 18 is the big age. So we can go out legally and drink. Um, not that alcohol and partying is like the center of life, but it's a big, it's a big thing, especially like when you first turn 18. Paul, you've told me about when you turned 21 on St. Patrick's Day many times. But, yeah, um, that's, that's a story that the audience is never going to get the full one on. Let's put it that no, way. No, but like just, just to lose that experience or just not even just it to be so different. My heart is going out to everyone and we don't want to rub in, rub it into our younger no, listeners no, 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 more, Paul. So. We'll go to this last part of Aiden's comment, and that was about the 7-7 attacks in London and my experience of them, because you're right, I completely forgot to mention them. And I kind of have a weird relationship with the London 7-7 attacks. And that's because despite it being perhaps the largest terrorist attack in recent modern British history, Certainly I was outside of the Troubles. Yes, of course, certainly outside the Troubles, yes. I wasn't in the UK at the time. Funnily enough, I was actually in Florida with my family on, a, I think, our first family holiday to Florida when it happened. USA! USA! <laughs> yes. USA, USA indeed. So it's strange. You don't know it happened. I wasn't in the country to have that immediate connection with it. And by the time I got back to the UK, because we were there for two weeks or so, the dust had more or less settled. So I don't have those memories of that immediate aftermath. I know it happened. I know it's awful, but just being there in the moment, Paul, the kind of memories you have now have about 9-11, just out of sheer fluke coincidence, I wasn't in the UK at the time. So it's just, it's not a core historic memory to me. It's just something I watched that happened on the telly. It's just one of those things. Yeah. The only story that I can give that is comparable to that, and obviously it's not as big as a 9-11, it's not as big as July 7th in 2005 for those living in the United Kingdom and Western Europe. But in 2003, there was a major blackout in the northeast of the United States that summer. And of course, I currently live and grew up there. However, much like yourself, I wasn't there at the time. <laughs> I was in Texas at the time, <laughs> so I'm watching all of this go on in TV and kind of seeing it all unfold, whereas if you were where I grew up at the time and would have been otherwise, should I not have been in Texas, I'm getting all the information that folks in that area were having trouble getting because it was a total blackout. Now, this was not terrorism. Obviously, everybody was very worried that it could be at the time because you would go after infrastructure that's not terribly unconventional idea when it comes to those sort of illegal, awful activities. But I was just watching it from afar. And it was very strange, one, watching it from afar, and two, going back later and hearing all my friends and family talk about what it was like experiencing it themselves when they were on the scene. Yeah, that is very comparable, Paul, to mine. Like just having this, having this event happen where you are from. And just not actually being there, it's a very odd concept. I'm glad you have something comparable to it to, to share with that. And my comments were in no way belittling civilly. I'm not like, oh, I wasn't no, there. No, it doesn't no. affect me because it does. It, you know, like it, it was a huge event in British history. You're not, you're not being flippant in any way. By yeah, any it's, it, it's just strange that it didn't come to me when we posed that question. Do we say thank you very much for all your comments, Paul. It was really good to hear from the listeners. I feel like I haven't done that in a while. It's been a little while, but it always makes me it makes me glow. 
anytime mm. it happens. And of course, because of the most recent episode with the question was only posed about three or four days from the time of recording here, submission is still open. So we'll create another thread for this episode on YouTube, asking you guys the same thing about generational historical shared moments. And if you so feel compelled, by all means, leave a good, thoughtful, respectful reply, and we'll end up reading it out in here. On top of that, you can also email it to us like Aiden did at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Once again, that's adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. And before we wrap the segment, because this is always so important and this is usually the purpose of the middle segment, if you really want to help out the AD History Podcast and help us make the AD History you deserve, consider joining Field Marshal Odo's ADFI Army over on Patreon. At the $5 tier or higher, you can submit any questions within bounds, whether it's history we've covered, history we will cover, the podcast, how it's made, or whatever's going on in Patrick or myself's professional life. That's all in bounds. And you can submit that, and we'll answer your question here live on air in our famous middle segment. In addition to donating on the $3 tier or higher, which gets you the new episodes 48 hours early, and they have a special RSS feed that you can plug into your podcast catcher of choice, which allows you to get that automatically and it downloads, it finds you. It's really, really cool stuff. In addition to the fact that it is also the director's cut version, which is a little bit longer, has some more content, has a little bit more of an in-episode, in-studio feel, which is fantastic. In addition to bonus content, things like the best of BC. And we know times are hard right now, and we understand that as well as anybody, guys. So if you really do want to help out the show, if you're on YouTube, obviously, Please subscribe and hit the bell for the notifications when new episodes become available, which is every other Saturday. Or, of course, leave a like or a comment. And if you're out on one of the podcast directories, if they have the ability to rate and review, please leave a five-star glowing rating and review because your words are so encouraging. It helps people find the show. And it really, really drives you on days where... You're trying to find the energy and the motivation and you see something like that and it really gets you going. So we'd like to thank you all who have submitted and we ask more of you to do so if you have a generational shared historical moment of yours. And us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Thank you, Anna Domini. Well, now we continue on to more of Diocletian's sweeping reforms. And one of the big places he did this was, interestingly enough, at the frontiers and borders of the Roman Empire itself. Yeah, Paul, you're completely right. So while Diocletian had a great mind for domestic affairs, he was a military man first and foremost. And it was at Rome's borders where he could actually once again flex his military muscles. And during his reign, Diocletian fought in a huge variety of battles. And he basically, you named them, he fought them. He fended off the Germanic tribes in the north. And over Rome's far east, he took on the likes of the Samaritans and Saracens. And it seems that his military might was to be believed, as he seems to be victorious in these battles and kept the borders at bay. And we're going to be talking about his military reforms a little bit next time. When I say we, Paul, you're going to be talking about his military reforms, I think, a little bit next time, if I'm correct. Yes. So we talked earlier in this episode in the first segment about his bureaucratic reforms in terms of what he did in regards to civil administration. And his military reforms were no less sweeping. But I think it's fair to say that in order to tease this right for next time, the thing that you'll end up taking away is he made very accurate reassessment 
of how Rome deployed its forces, which is to say, without getting into detail, spoiling it for next time, he saw so much of what had happened over the last couple of centuries where you have armies marching all over the empire to take care of XYZ threat. And he thought to himself that there is a much smarter way of doing this, and certainly in terms of deployment. But like I said, like the bureaucratic civil reforms, and interestingly enough, there's actually quite a bit of civil-military relations in both sets of issues here. It's fair to say that next time we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of it because he really changes how the Roman army functioned in a profound way that was a lot smarter than what they had been doing. I feel like Diocletian would really enjoy SimCity if he was alive today. Just being able to sort of control <laughs> so everything. <laughs> just being able to c control everything on like a real micromanage level. He was a real micromanager. Just this works like this. And then within this, we have this bit, this bit, this bit. And just in every aspect, like his military reforms, the tetriarchy, the economy. He just, he likes systems and like folders within folders and actually like just bureaucracy. And while that does tend to be seen as a bad thing, bureaucracy, it, it's needed in places, especially when an empire as big as Rome is knees deep or neck deep in a crisis, you need some bureaucratic order in places. And Diocletian delivered that. Yeah. And as a kid who grew up on SimCity, starting with its original incarnation, the very first SimCity, then SimCity 2000 and so on. Mm. Yeah, definitely that. And I think he'd be really interested in Paradox's offerings of grand strategy games. I get the feeling Diocletian yeah. might have really enjoyed Hearts of Iron for you, those of you who are out there in the in the Hearts of Iron cult, of which case I can say, hail fellow member. But that is very true, without a doubt. His whole thing, if you were to really boil it down, was that he believed in rigorous reorganization and organization in general and productivity and efficiency in every single respect. and. This will be just another major example of that. But something that he did, and even though we might be getting a little ahead of ourselves, given we haven't got to his other major reforms yet, but it's still really important here, is Patrick, he did something that uh, not, not too many Roman leaders had done in about, oh, I don't know, three and a half centuries, which is to say he bloody retired. Yeah, so this was absolutely insane when I read this. And in 303 AD, so we're actually going way past our allotted time period for this episode, but who needs to, why are we putting time in those sort of periods anyway? So that might change for this episode. But in 303 AD, Diocletian became ill on his sole trip to Rome. And that might just be proof of how gross Rome was at this time. The only time he went to Rome, he got incredibly sick. And we always love to reiterate Rome was a pretty dirty place at the best of times. And that has just made me chuckle. That's for more proof of it. And so this led to him doing something completely unheard of in Rome. He he abdicated. And this is a question I was saying to myself, Paul. I can't think of any, at least since we've been doing AD history anyway, no one abdicating is coming to mind for me. I'm trying to rack my brain through the Barak emperors before that. They either died of natural causes in office or were murdered. Nobody yeah. ever willingly stepped down. It takes a big person, I'll say, to realize I'm not good at this anymore. I need to step down. That's a really bold, big move to do. And even like it goes back to him splitting the empire up. It takes a big person to go, I'm not good enough for this. To actually be that aware of who you are as a person, to know your own limits is a tremendous quality. And Diocletian is a guy who really knew his own limits. He knew, hey, Rome's too big for one person. I'm going to split it up. Hey, I'm old and unwell. 
I'm going to abdicate. And it just shows why he was so gosh darn unique as an emperor. And he officially stepped down in August 305 AD. And with him, Maximian also stepped down as well. And so, as we mentioned, things were in place this time. We knew who was that transition of power had been established by uh, Diocletian. And when Maximian stepped down and Diocletian stepped down, their Caesars became the next Augusti. Yes, indeed. And interestingly enough, if you're ever interested in making a trip to Croatia, you can go and visit Diocletian's palace that he retired to. and. Let's put it this way. It is palatial and in pretty darn good shape. Yeah, Croatia is so high on my bucket list at the moment. I really want to go visit various bits of Croatia for various reasons. And this is just added to that list of reasons why I want to go visit Split, I believe, is, is now, which is a great name for a place, Split. I wonder what that means in Croatian. But um, it's on my list and it was here in his retirement palace. He could actually do the one thing he really wanted to do, Paul. Not play SimCity because I've been invented yet. Not play Hearts <laughs> of Iron. <laughs> he could garden, which in its own weirdless way is a lot like SimCity Paul, because you get to look at all of it from a bird's eye perspective, make things look pretty and neat, produce like good things. And he loved gardening to a huge extent. And now in his retirement, which he got, he could do that. It's interesting because even though we haven't gotten through the entirety of everything that he did, and that will continue and finish up in our next episode. It's interesting because Diocletian as a ruler was a ruler of many contradictions. So when we're looking at his decision to step down, one thing that reminds me of is a figure that predates our show in the epoch that we cover, which of course is the Roman figure Cincinnatus, who was a farmer who was called to service during the Republican era, became a major leader, and when his time and necessity concluded, he gave up power, and he went back to his farm. Now, granted, Diocletian's not exactly going back to his farm, as it were. I would say, based on the gardening that I imagine he did, he would be something of what we might call today, or in the not-too-distant past, a gentleman farmer. He wasn't too worried about getting a bumper crop. He was doing this because he loved it. But for somebody that was in this semi-divine imperial institution that he really initiated— the idea that one that is held so high, that holds such a status, would then choose to step down and hand off power is truly incredible. We can, on top of that, see the variety of contradictions. Think about the guilds and keeping people in their respective profession for generations, which is completely contradictory to the life that he led. So he's a very interesting figure in this respect. He's a man and ruler of many contradictions, and probably none more than deciding to step down and hand off power. It's really just unfortunate that the trend would get bucked very quickly. Yeah, so Diocletian actually died in 311 AD gardening away at his palace in Split. And that's his life. Of course, there's a lot more to talk about. Diocletian's a big figure. We're going to cover him an awful lot more in the next episode. But we have to ask ourselves the question, Paul, how well did Diocletian's reforms actually work out? That's an interesting question. And I have to preface it by saying we'll have a much deeper and informed conversation when we get to the remainder in our following episode. But as a quick macro bird's eye view, I think it's fair to say that he had a tremendous impact on the Roman Empire, and that 
from what we can tell based on archaeological finds and, and, and various other pieces of evidence that are historically significant and authoritative, that the vast majority of the people in the empire would have considered themselves happy and living in good times. One of the major exceptions, of course, in that case, are going to be Christians, which yes. get persecuted heavily, and we're also going to talk about that in our next episode, to be sure. But he had a very large vision, and he was revolutionary in many respects, and he did not get everything right by any means. But there are so few figures in history that have had the ability to have this grand scope of vision and then have the power and cooperation from his subordinates to actually enact them on such a significant scale. And that's one of the things about Diocletian that always takes me aback, and that he wasn't afraid to buck the trend, and in many ways, though very much conservative in terms of the changes that he made, despite the fact that they were huge, many of them served Rome extremely well. Uh, we'll talk about in the next episode some of them that didn't, like, for example, the Edict on Maximum Prices, mm -hmm. to be sure. That's a big thing. But while we'll have a more informed look in our next episode, because there's still so much to cover when it comes to Diocletian, he was what Rome needed. But at the same time, he also wasn't a sweeping success, but he did manage to put the empire in a form that allowed it to endeavor for at least another century, and more importantly, in the East, make a profound impact on what yes. we would come to know as the Eastern Empire and the Byzantine Empire. And when we talk more about the bureaucracy changes that he makes, you will then have a much greater historical understanding of how we came to the term Byzantine. And I look forward to finding that about myself. But I actually don't know where that term of Byzantine comes from. That's something I should look into at some point. It, it is it is interesting, but effectively, given the very stratified and very complex, layered way that he would lay out, as we'll talk about in our next episode, it was labyrinthian time and extremely complex. You could also refer mm. to it as Kafkaesque if you wanted to. But <laughs> from what I've heard, there are some people that have suggested that they were born initially out of the reforms that he made and the legacy that followed through because of those changes and how closely associated they would be to Rome's proper successor, certainly in the East, the Byzantine Empire. Very, very right, Paul. And we've got an awful lot more to say about Diocletian because despite the fact we want, we want to stop talking about the crisis of the first century people, don't get us wrong, but we just can't seem to stop doing it at the moment. There's just so much, a lot happened at the end here. And Sorry if we're dragging out. It's getting a bit Love the Rings-esque here. The mm. end just keeps on dragging out and dragging out. We wanted it in the end, but this is actual history. This isn't a fairy tale book, although Lord of the Rings is a fairy tale fantasy. <laughs> this has a bit of a dragged out ending, and we have to carry on talking about it to explain just how important Diocletian was, but that's going to be for our next episode. And, you know, coming to the end of the third century here, Patrick, obviously about when you go back and you look at the total accounting, about half of this third season has been very heavily focused on it. And that's the nature of AD history. But we can tell you this much. When this does wrap, new and interesting things are going to come into focus. And new stories from other parts of the world are going to emerge because this is a world history podcast. It just so happens that this is the headline stuff of the moment, guys. And boy, is it interesting. And boy, does it inform the world we live in today. 
Yeah, I've kind of forgotten other parts of the world exist at this time. I'm looking forward to going back, despite how long I spent looking at China in the past, I'm looking forward to going back to look at how China are getting on with things. Uh, Korea, I did take take a brief look into. Central America. So, yeah, Central America will be kicking off soon enough. Yeah, so much is going on. It's just Rome, Rome, like an annoying child, is just taking up all of our attention at the moment. And what a big child it is. Oh, goodness. Oh, boy. With that close to putting it to bed, we're just warming up the bottle. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. And but it's fun. It's important, and most importantly, Patrick. And I think that's the thing we always need to emphasize: is these events very much, in a tangible way, definitively influence our HD world, even seventeen hundred years ago from the time of this recording. And that's an amazing thought to have when you begin putting the pieces together. This is not simply a butterfly effect. These are institutions that are commonplace and well-established in our world, and they most certainly did not start with us. No. And us here, you there, and we'll be back right afterward from AD. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT and, of course, on YouTube, search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKDInHistory, as well as my reader-submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II-related questions, which, if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care. Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History Podcast episodes available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast and Instagram as ADHistoryPodcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching ADHistoryPodcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.